Warning. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language. Nil Desperandum 26 Preacher Porter's Cure by J. Michael Shell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Thank you for joining me again for another Nil Desperandum. Today, our main fiction is the second part of J. Michael Schell's Preacher Porter's Cure. hope you enjoyed the first part last week, and I hope you enjoy uh, this second part in what I believe should be the conclusion uh, next week. And uh, next week, we should also have a interview with the man himself, Mr. J. Michael Schell. Also this week, Adam Gauntlet returns for another selection from his bookshelf, and I will be joined later by Jennifer Leeper. Jennifer is the author of Padre, which was heard back on Nil Desperandum 20, and a novel by the same name is available in stores now. First up, however, our main fiction, Preacher Porter's Cure by J. Michael Schell, Part 2. In Part 1, we met Myron a reformed alcoholic who had decided to kill himself in a decidedly uh, Faulknerian manner. Before he could do so, however, he met the bum, who told Myron of his own bouts with alcoholism and how he overcame them with the assistance of an old black preacher named Preacher Porter, and the cure which Preacher Porter gave the bum, and which the bum will give to Myron. The bum tells Myron of his time with Preacher Porter, and our story picks up, as the bum story comes to a close. That's the gist of it, anyway, the bum told me. Now, do you want the good ending or the bad ending? What's the difference? I asked. In the good ending you live, and in the bad ending you die. I wasn't sure I understood him, but I knew he was telling the truth. The bum came back to the trailer with me that day, and over the next week or so, I underwent Preacher Porter's cure. The bum's god is a big black man with a shiny smile. Mine is an old, beanie-weenie-eating tramp with white hair and a beard. The bum disappeared shortly after the night I bared my dark secrets to him. When the opportunity arises, and it will, I'll pass along the cure, and somebody's god will be an old raggedy hippie. As I sat thinking about the bum, it started raining in earnest, and the sun disappeared into the cloudy sky. The devil, having beaten his wife sufficiently, had drawn the shades on her wailing. By the time the sun came back out, it was low on the horizon. I'd sat there all day thinking about a preacher I'd never met, and a bum I'd more than likely never see again. I considered it a day well spent. I was surprised at how tired I'd become sitting around all that rainy day thinking about the bum. I'd only known him a week or so, yet I missed him more than any relative I could think of. With my eyes drooping like the pants on a repairman, I reverted to my usual total absence of bedclothes and dropped off to sleep. I think. Next thing I knew, I was back out in the palms, airing my privates, and watching a procession of changing faces and bodies walk toward me out of the dark. Captain Kangaroo, as unlikely as it seems, turned into a net funicello complete with mouse ears. Annette turned into Ward Cleaver, and Ward became my great-aunt Grace, who'd been dead for twenty years. When the apparition got really close, it took on the hazy form of an old black preacher, 
and suddenly I was filled with joy. I knew who it would become next, and it did. Just as plain as day, no more than three feet in front of me, stood the bum. There's something I gotta tell you, kid, and you ain't gonna like it. Are you really the bum? Am I dreaming or crazy or what? I swear I haven't touched a drop since you left. But if I didn't know better, I'd think I was drunk. What gives? I'm not sure if I said all that out loud, or just thought it. I was more asleep than awake, but I knew I was really standing out in the palms, and the bum looked very real. What I am, said the bum, is a gray-skinned being about a meter tall, with enormous dark eyes and a big hairless head. You want to see that, or me? And actually, there is nobody physically here but you. I'm about a 160 miles above you in geosynchronous orbit. What you think you see is actually a projection with your brain is receiving a sensory input. If you want, you can touch me. You'll think I'm solid. I can even fart and you'll think you'll smell it. He did, and I wished he hadn't. Beanie weenies, he said, smiling. If you're telling the truth, how are you doing this, and why? Is this some sort of alien abduction? If it was, you'd be up here right now with hoses up your ass and machines extracting your semen. My people don't condone experiments on sentient beings, but there's a few renegades who are in cahoots with your enemies that do. You don't want to know what they're up to. But if you're smart, you're going to figure it out once I've told you what I'm going to tell you. So tell me already. I'm dead on my feet. I know. Your mind can't take these transmissions for too long, and it's taken me two tries just to find a form in your brain that you trust and listen to. Captain Kangaroo, for the love of Mike, I should have let you jump in the bay with that clock around your neck. The bum, or the image of the bum, was still cussing me out when my eyes fell shut and I dropped to my knees. The jolt opened my eyes again, but just barely. The bum was a hazy apparition now, and his voice was becoming distant, like an echo. You'll get used to it, kid. Tomorrow night wear something to bed, will you? Bad enough I gotta look at you, much less look at you naked. I thought you was going to pop a rod when you saw a net in those mouse ears. Jesus. Now go back to bed before you end up out here all night. Okay, bum, I said with my last remaining strength. I still believe in your God, you know. That's swell, kid. Just swell. Again, I must have slept well after my encounter with... something. Because I awoke in fine spirits. I felt unusually light-hearted, as if I was convinced all was well. The world as it was, I knew, bore a distinct resemblance to a lunatic asylum. But I couldn't see that now, and it was as if it didn't exist for me. What existed was the sun shining through the bougainvilleas, the smell of salt air, and, yes, the memory of having seen and spoken to the bum. No matter what he'd said about being a little gray man, it was the bum. Every nuance, every raw cuss and tender double meaning was 100% pure and unadulterated bum. The same bum who'd saved my life and heard my confession. I was very interested in hearing what he had to tell me. It wasn't until late afternoon that my euphoria, or whatever I was feeling, wore off. When it did, it wore off like watercolor in a car wash. Fear replaced it. What the hell was going on? Was I really being contacted by aliens? And if not, how dangerously insane was I? All these thoughts started a demolition derby in my mind. They clanged around in there with fenders hanging off and engines knocking till I was crazy with thinking about being crazy. I donned my bibbed overalls earlier, thinking I'd sleep in them as a joke on the bum. 
Now I didn't think there was any way I could fall asleep, much less in those overalls. I was damn near frantic. Panicky. I was still fretting at about ten o'clock that night when something happened. The demolition derby in my head stopped, turned into a marshmallow fight in a padded room. My fear vanished. Suddenly I was sleepy. Incredibly sleepy. Like a bear in December, I headed for my bed and dropped into it. And, of course, then I was out in the palms. The bum was standing there, moonlit, and I felt just a wee bit more awake than I had the previous two nights. None of my crash car thoughts assailed me. Feeling quite relaxed and at ease, I said, "'What you know, bum?' "'I know you look as stupid in those Farmer Browns as you did the last time I saw you in them. At least you didn't wear a clock.' "'I was thinking about you today, bum. If you're not the real bum, where is he?' "'I don't know, kid. I'd have to have some DNA to tell you that. You got some, I'll look him up for you.' "'No, I don't think I've got any of your—I mean his—DNA.' "'Well, I can't do miracles, kid.' It's all technology up here, but that ain't what I come to tell you. I come to tell you you got perpetrators, kid, prowlers, and they're up in your attic crawling around, but you can't see them. What are you talking about, bum? You aren't making any sense. Okay, I know. It's hard working in this bum persona. He gets off on a tangent, and I have trouble controlling him. Let me start again. There are entities on your planet, always have been, that you can't see. They're moving at light speed, sometimes a little faster, and they're influencing your species. Humanity. They're whispering in your ears and manipulating you. They're making suggestions. This is pretty heavy stuff, Bum. But how can these entities influence people by making suggestions? In the time it takes you to blink your eye, one of them can suggest something to you over a hundred thousand times. If he's patient... Your heart will have beat twice by the time he's suggested something to you for the quarter of a millionth time. It wears on you, kid. While we're linked up like this, they can't suggest nothing to you. Even after I sever the connection, it'll take them a good many hours to get back in your head. But trust me, kid, they'll come back with a vengeance. They know what I'm doing, and they don't like it one bit. They're stuck down there, though, you see, and I'm up here. Even if I came down, there's not much they could do but fill my head full of their drivel. Of course, if I wasn't careful, they could cause me to have an accident, I suppose, or commit some sort of indiscretion. I must say I'm very fond of the human female form, but I'm not coming down, so it doesn't matter. Could you bring me up there? Not without coming to get you. This ain't Star Trek, kid. There ain't no transporter beams, at least not that I've ever seen, and I'm handling the best technology I know of right now. No, you ain't likely to get a 160-mile-high view any time soon. Unless you do it yourself, of course. You can, too, you know. That's one of the things your entities are trying to keep you from. God damn it, Bum, who are these entities? Don't take the Lord's name in vain, kid. They're the same ones as made the place. That same bunch that skipped out on God's party and took a third of the crowd with them. They're stuck here now. I've never interfered with what's going on except that those renegades of ours have started working for Lucifer and his bunch. I'm just trying to even things back up to where they were before our little entrepreneurs managed to diddle in the sauce. But why me? Am I the only one you've contacted? Afraid so, kid. God help us, you're the sanest one I could find. When I woke up, I was face down under the palms. The last thing I could remember was the bum saying I was sane. I felt good, but had a headache. I went inside and ate a B.C. powder for breakfast. As I swallowed the bitter headache dust, I remembered how incredibly tired I was getting as the bum went on and on about renegade aliens 
and the unseen entities he'd called Lucifer's Bunch. The bum's story was pretty far-fetched, but it did make sense. I thought about how I'd felt the morning before and how, by afternoon, my peace and calm had been completely shattered. He said the entities couldn't bother me for hours after our link-up. He also said they'd come back with a vengeance when they could. Great. Just what I needed. And what was that shit about me being the sanest one he could find? He certainly mustn't have looked very hard. If he'd said the sanest one on Avenue A, I might have believed it. I wished I could talk to the real bum. Then I remembered. DNA. The bum said if I had some of the real bum's DNA, he could find them. That furry old fuck had slept on my little pull-out couch in the front room of the trailer for over a week. Surely he must have shed a hair or two. I pulled the folding couch out into a bed and started to hunt. It didn't take long before I had half a dozen silver bum hairs in my palm. Carefully I wrapped them in a wad of toilet paper and stuck them into the bib of my overalls. Surely the real bum was saner than I. He'd had much more practice. Once we rounded him up, this pie-in-the-sky alien could talk turkey with him, and maybe we'd get somewhere. I, for one, was having trouble dealing with it. Maybe I could pass the buck. Things pretty much followed the course they'd taken the day before, except that it seemed later this time before panic set in. I managed to keep from tearing my hair out until ten o'clock when, right on schedule, I crapped out and came to in the palms. How you feeling, kid? You awake? Pretty much, I guess. Better than last time. Still a little foggy, though. It's the link, kid. Causes a bunch of endorphins and stuff till you get used to it. You sure conked out on me quick last night, though. I didn't notice you were losing it till it was too late. Sorry about leaving you on the ground like that, but I really don't want to come down there if I can help it. Hope you weren't too uncomfortable. Wasn't the first time I've slept on the ground. Then I remembered. Hey, bum, I've got something for you. Ah, shit, kid, I was hoping you'd forget about them hairs. How'd you know? I'm in your head, kid. I know what you know. I pulled the wad of toilet tissue out of my overalls and held it out to him. Jesus, kid, are you really that dumb? He said, shaking his head. I just got done telling you I'm in your head. Go on, hand them to me. The bum held out his hand and I placed the wad of toilet tissue in it. I could feel his hand touch mine. But the wad of tissue dropped straight to the ground. Get it now, kid. I ain't here. I'm here, he said, tapping my skull with his forefinger. But last night you said if I had some DNA you could find the real bum. And the real bum is the guy you're looking for, not me. The bum's saner than I am. I'm sure of it. If you were lying to me, there's no use dragging me out here anymore because I'm not going to believe a word you say from now on. What do you think of that? Look, kid, I wasn't lying. If I had the DNA up here, I could locate your bum for you. I never in a million years thought you'd actually come up with some or I'd have kept my mouth shut. This damn bum persona gets to telling you stuff before I know it's doing it. So what do you think, kid? You gonna cut me some slack on this or what? No dice. I said, standing shakily on principle. Either you take this DNA and find the bum, or it's the ice-cold shoulder from now on. The bum kicked his foot, but no dust rose. Jesus H. Christ, kid, you're going to make me come down there anyway, aren't you? And for what? There's no way this bum's any saner than you, or I'd have scanned him. I had to lower the parameter of the scan five times just to find you. Lucy's gang has really got you people screwed up. It's an asylum down there. There's two meanings to that word, kid. An asylum's just what I came to offer you. 
I can keep them from chattering at you, don't you see? That was the plan from the start. I scan the planet to find certain parameters, find the one or ones who are functioning within them, then stop all the noise till they grow up. Goddamn brilliant. Except you were the only one I could find functioning even close to my original parameters. Which means even without the noise, you may not grow up. And even if you do, there's only one of you. Actually, one is enough. But I'd hope to get three or four and balance things a little in you people's favor. It's cheating, I know. But I'm a soft-hearted old Siri, uh, alien. And I hate to watch him make fools of you like this. Well, excuse me for making you lower your standards or parameters or whatever. You just get down here and find the bum, and you'll have the top of the line. Because one way or the other, I quit. Look, kid, you're about to nod off, so let's just both sleep on it, okay? And for Christ's sakes, wear something else tomorrow night, will you? Those overalls are getting on my nerves. He was right about me nodding off. I barely made it back to bed. Next morning, the headache wasn't as bad, and I actually felt so peaceful I started to regret being so hard on the bum. The alien but I decided to stick to my guns. That night I wore a pair of boxer shorts and a camel t-shirt. The hairs were stuffed in the pocket on Joe Camel's face. I didn't start going nuts till almost nine o'clock that night. By ten I was making a beeline for my bed as the big sleep overcame me. I thought about just going out and lying on the ground by the palms, but decided why get dirty. I'd be standing out there next thing I knew anyway. Sure enough, I was. So was the bum and so was a great big something or other hovering darkly over the palms. I hope you appreciate this, kid. I had to broadlink every mind within a mile radius to come down here. I guess that's the hairs bulging in your pocket there. You look like the one-titted whore Dave kept in his cave. The what? Forget it, kid. You ready to find this bum or what? The Lucys have got my head so full of shit I can barely think. Normally I could pretty much sort through all their crap, but maintaining this link with you is no small feat. So just stand still and I'll bring you up. You're going to float, so don't panic on me. As soon as he'd said that, a blue light washed over us, and our feet left the ground. I looked up in time to see an iris-like door opening. By the time I'd cleared the palms, I was halfway into the ship. The bum was floating right in with me. The first thing to catch my attention was the size of the thing. I couldn't see much more than a dark shape of undetermined size from the ground. But from inside, it seemed like Joe Robbie Stadium could have easily fit in it, with room left for parking. When my eyes got used to the dim light and swirling fogs and vapors of the place, I noticed a little man lying on what looked like an elaborate dentist's couch. His head was big, all right, and it had wires coming out of it like snakes on a gorgon. He seemed to take no notice of us at all. Does he know we're here? I asked the bum. Boy, you're dimmer than a ten-watt bug bulb, you know that? That's me sitting there, bone brain. If I sever the link, communication would be a lot less accurate. And once the Lucy's got back in your head, it would be almost all one way. One way, because I'd have to try and pick you out of all the chatter. This making sense to you, kid? I got it, Bum. Just a little foggy, that's all. I know, kid. Sorry I called you Bone Brain. And what about the ten-watt bulb thing? Don't press it. So how are we going to find the Bum? Piece of cake. It's all set up. See that glass-looking tube in my hand over there? Put the hairs in it, and try not to jostle me, okay? I've got more shit plugged into me than Con Ed on Christmas Eve. I walked over to the wired-up alien and carefully dropped the hairs, one at a time, into the glass tube in its hand. It never moved or batted an eyelash. Now that I think about it, it didn't have an eyelash. No sooner had I finished depositing the hairs than the bum said to me, 
He's dead. What do you mean he's dead? I insisted. Unless he makes a habit of living in a box under three meters of dirt, he's dead. Kid, I'm sorry, but... Hey, what the hell? The image of the bum started to crackle, kind of like television in a lightning storm, and I heard an eerie, high-pitched wail come from the direction of the alien. He was moving now, all right, pulling wires out of his head like they'd suddenly grown teeth and an appetite. He was still pulling wires when he got up out of his couch and started darting around and fiddling with what looked like some kind of control panels. The bum, still crackling, had a look on his face like someone had just pole-vaulted up his ass. I was about to ask him what the hell was going on when he let out a yell at the same time the alien let out another high-pitched squeal. Then he blew like a cloud of smoke over to where the alien was writhing and squealing on the floor. It was a hideous sight, to say the least. I couldn't tell where the apparition the bum had become ended and the alien began. Then the alien started changing. When that happened, he squealed even louder and started shaking like the queen of the St. Vitus High School prom. If that door hadn't closed behind us, I'd have jumped out it and taken my chances with gravity. Before long, it was obvious what the alien was changing into. The bum. He was sprouting hairs and growing here and shrinking there and screaming the whole time. I knew a little CPR and the Heimlich maneuver, but this was way out of my league. There was nothing I could do but stand there and shit bricks. You could have built all three pigs a house and still had bricks left over. After what seemed like hours, but might only have been minutes, the alien was gone and the bum was lying on the floor, sweating and panting in its place. You all right? I asked lamely. The bum gave me a look that reminded me of his opinion of my intelligence. He was still panting too hard to talk but managed to shake his head and grunt. Uh-uh. Can I do anything to help? Again, he gave me that stare. When finally he could talk again, he looked up at me and said, We're in a heap of shit now, kid. A big heap. The alien turning into the bum must have severed our link, because I was wide awake. All the fogginess had left me. The bum was up on his feet by then, scratching his head and fiddling with the controls. Then he turned to me and said, we're going to have to get out of here, kid. I think I've got it set to float us back groundside. You think? What do you mean you think? Shit, kid, I can't remember how to work all this. It's a wonder there's room enough in this pea brain for what I do remember. I think I've got it set to drop us off and then go back into orbit. And I think it's sending a distress call. So let's get out before it pops back up to a few hundred clicks, okay? Whatever you say, bum. The iris door opened, and from somewhere, a shaft of blue light went down through it. Bum stepped into the light and started slowly descending. I held my breath and stepped in with him. We must have been about two-thirds of the way to the ground when the light went out. The door slammed shut, and the bum and I dropped the remaining distance to the ground. The ship was gone. Well, I almost got it right, Bum said, getting to his feet and brushing himself off. Jesus, I need a drink. You don't drink, Bum, remember? Of course, it's the damn Lucy's. But don't worry, I'll get used to them. Once I get them all sorted out, I'll be okay. You all right? Yeah, but what happened? Are you the bum now, or the alien, or what? The bum's dead. But for all intents and purposes, I am the bum. Those damn Lucys tricked me into jacking a conversion field into the DNA scan, and then somehow got me to cross that into the power converter for the link. The DNA sequencing in the scanner ran the bum specs through the conversion field and hard-copied me through the feed. You lost me, bum. I lost me too, kid. But the bottom line is, the system used me like copy paper and printed out the bum. Can you ever turn back into yourself? Should be able to, 
if they ever get my message back home. Even if they do, it's going to be a while before they get here. Hell, you think it's a long way to Tippery, you ought to try serious. A lot of time is going to pass down here before the cavalry comes a-charging. I hope you don't mind an extended visit, kid. Can I call you Uncle Martin? Don't press it. What little time I'd had linked up that night must have still been keeping the Lucys out of my head, because I felt great. I told the bum as much as I was pulling out the couch for him. That was the next step, kid. I'm glad you were ready for it. Ideally, I would have kept you linked till you couldn't stay conscious for another couple of sessions. Then, when you were ready, sever the link while you were awake. It could take the Lucy's days to get back in your head now. Apparently, you're saner than I thought. I didn't think you were ready yet. What if I hadn't been ready? You'd be pushing up daisies with the bum. Great. Anything else I should know? Well, the Lucy's are going to do their best to kill you now. Or rather, make you somehow kill yourself. They sure got to me quick. Obviously, the renegades have sold out more completely than I thought they would. No way the Lucy's could have pulled that trick off without a lot of technical advice. I've got a feeling they had something to do with the bum's death, too. Apparently, he died the same day I dropped into orbit. The day I started to scan. I think the renegades read my parameters and got to him before I could find him. When the homies find out what's really going on here, there are going to be some fireworks. My people don't believe in interfering, kid, but we're a pretty paranoid bunch. The doggies aren't going to rest now until the renegades are neutralized. Doggies? Rough translation, kid. Dumb translation, really. But I am this bum, after all. Doggies, kid. Syrians. You know, the dog star. Actually, dog stars. There's a lot of us doggies, kid. Usually peaceful, mostly explorers, but paranoid, like I said. Get him worried enough, and they'll take out the whole soul system without thinking twice about it. The renegades have attacked one of their own now, and sided with entities, light beings. The doggies don't like to admit exist. It's a long story, kid. You sure you want to hear it? Yeah, bum. I'm wide awake. Jacked up, really. But I've got to ask you something first. Why did you come down here and not just stay with your ship? I know what you're thinking, kid. I wish I could say to protect you from the Lucys, but us doggies got a saying. Look out for number one. I'd have stayed with the ship if I could have. But in order for that big old rust bucket to stay in orbit undetected, it has to engage a transdimensional skip every few minutes. Basically what it does is slip into another dimension for a few nanoseconds. When it comes back, it brings a little envelope of the other dimension with it, making it undetectable to any technology you've got down here. Unfortunately, it would only take one or two such skips to fry a human brain. And even if I could stay up there, what would I eat? I don't have enough knowledge of the ship left to come foraging around down here for human food. Well, at least you're honest. The bum never did lie to me that I know of. I know, kid. Physically, I am the bum. Mentally, I'm the bum as you perceived him. And somewhere in this peapod of a skull, there's a little bit of three stars left. That's your real name? Three stars? Three stars coupling is the closest I can come in English. Menage a trois would be closer. When I was born, all three stars in our system were in alignment. It's like the old joke about the Indian named Two Dogs Fucking. Only with me it was three. It was a three-dog night, so to speak. So tell me about the doggies, bum. This is better than a Doris Lessing novel. Actually, it sounds a lot like a Doris Lessing novel. You people are hooked up and don't know it, kid. A lot of what you call fiction ain't. You want to hear about the doggies and what the hell. The pooch is screwed now anyway.
Look for the conclusion of Preacher Porter's Cure next week, along with an interview with the author, Mr. J. Michael Schell. But for right now, we'll revisit Mr. Adam Gauntlet and his bookshelf. Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. This time it's Dreamlike Alexandria, as depicted by an Englishman, the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. My copies are old paper paperbacks, which can still be found in the UK. The books themselves are still in print, and there are audio versions, some of which are downloadable via audible.co.uk. Uh, to my knowledge, there are no e-reader editions, but given that Faber and Faber obviously intend to keep the quartet in circulation, a new edition is planned for 2012, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see one turn up soon. Lawrence Durrell is a writer I had a lot of difficulty enjoying. I grew up with his brother Gerald's books, which were largely comic novels about Gerald's childhood in Corfu and his later experiences as a naturalist and zookeeper in the 1950s and 60s. Though they were very informative, the tone was light-hearted and entertaining, so I was expecting much the same thing from Lawrence. The two men's styles couldn't be more different, and Lawrence's seriousness put me off at first, such that I didn't try him again until much later in life. Then I picked up his speed of corps while browsing one of the second-hand places near Tottenham Court in London. That, and Lawrence's two other short story collections about a hapless diplomat struggling to keep a stiff upper lip when all around him is collapsing into chaos, convinced me that Lawrence wasn't made of stone. And as a result, I started looking for his other work, which is how I found Justine, Montolive, Balthazar, and Clee, the Alexandria novels. I have been hooked ever since. Lawrence Durrell's generation were the last remnants of colonialism. He was born in 1912, the son of a career diplomat stationed in India, and spent his early childhood there before being sent home at the age of 11 to continue his education. He never enjoyed living in England, and when the family found itself at a loose end after his father's death, he persuaded them to move to Corfu, where the weather would be more congenial. He later chronicled his experiences there in the novel Prospero's Cell, but the better-known version of that story was penned by his brother Gerald, who wrote My Family and Other Animals, Birds, Beasts and Relatives, and Garden of the Gods, a string of comedic short stories about the shortcomings of his family and the marvels of pre-war Corfu. The war caught the family on the harp, and Lawrence and his wife fled Greece after the Germans invaded to the safety of Egypt, and settled for a time in Alexandria. This later became the place and time in which he set the events of the quartet, just before and during the war, in this city, half-imagined yet wholly real. Why must I return to it night after night, writing here by the fire of carob wood, while the Aegean wind clutches at this island house, clutching and releasing it, bending back the cypresses like bows? Durrell called the quartet an investigation into modern love. It describes the intricate and tangled lives of its participants, Montolive, the English diplomat, Pombal, the French attaché, Balthazar, the intellectual mystic, Justine and Clee, the romantic anchors of the story, among many others. And in the first three novels, tells the same story, but from the different viewpoints of each character. So where one fails to describe an event, or lack of knowledge creates a void, another picks up and the reader sees what might have happened or what did happen from their several different points of view. Nor do the narrators necessarily agree with each other, such that it is the reader, it's as if the reader is getting accounts of someone's relationship from their friends and relatives. 
The narrator of the first novel, Justine, seemed at first to have a handle on the situation, for example, and the reader is tempted to take his position as the authoritative story, only to have that perception exploded when the narrator is told in the second novel, you have got it all wrong, you know, and then chimes in with that novel's version of the facts. Montolive comes at the problem from a detached third-party perspective, and in Clee, the fourth novel, the narrator of the first finally comes back to his story, confesses that he might have, if not bungled, at least misinterpreted some of the actions in the first novel, and goes on to describe what happens next. Consider this from Balthazar. I cannot say that I forgot the city, but I let the memory of it sleep. Yet, of course, it was always there, as it always will be, hanging in the mind like the mirage which travellers so often see. Perswarden has described the phenomenon in the following words. We were still almost a couple hours steaming distance from before land could possibly come into sight when suddenly my companion shouted and pointed at the horizon. We saw, inverted in the sky, a full-scale mirage of the city, luminous and trembling, as if painted on dusty silk, yet in the nicest detail. From memory I could clearly make out its features. Arazel Tin Palace, the Nebi Daniel Mosque, and so forth. And the whole representation was as breathtaking as a masterpiece painted in fresh dew. Now, pros and cons. Uh, pro 1. This is a lyrical and fascinating portrait of a fragile moment in time. It depends for its impact on the Rashomon effect, but because this is allowed to develop over four novels, the depth of that portrait is astounding. Moreover, although this is a tale about love, it never becomes a love story in the traditional sense of the term, which, given that Darrell led a bohemian life and married four times, is probably to be expected. Pro 2. The setting and stage for the events is unusual and very effective. Particularly in Balthazar and Montolive, Darrell captures what must have been a very tumultuous part of Egyptian history, trembling on the precipice of revolt while the Africa Corps were banging on the door. Yet he doesn't let the novels become war stories. War is part of the background, but it isn't the point of the quartet. Pro 3. It has at its heart a character study, and the reader comes to understand each character, even the minor ones, as though the reader knew them. The first novel sketches the outlines and adds some element of style, and the reader is lulled into thinking that might be it, yet in the second, third, and fourth iterations more details are added, more layers, until they begin to live and breathe and talk in their own voices. It's an astonishing effect once the whole of it is laid out for viewing. Con 1. It can be difficult to absorb. I mentioned earlier how difficult I found Lawrence when I'd expected something other than that I found in front of me, and I wouldn't recommend him to anyone who isn't prepared to put a little work in. This is one of the ones that will make you think, and if that's not what you're looking for, you'll probably be frustrated. I've recommended the quartet, but of course Lawrence wrote many other works. Some of them have not aged well. I like Antrobus and his diplomatic escapades, for example, but they are clearly creatures of their time and seem a little dusty nowadays. I could say the same of The Revolt of Aphrodite, though I enjoyed Prospero's cell and found the Dark Labyrinth fascinating. What I am laboriously getting at is this. If you enjoy the quartet, it does not necessarily follow that you'll enjoy his other books. 
tread cautiously here, for he's one of those writers whose different moods are sometimes unrewarding to follow. And that's it from me. Bye-bye. Dreams of a Sailor. The Wit. I'm thinking perky boobs can only go so far. Today is a very busy day for me. I have to go to the beach and work on my tan. The Wisdom. God gets to see its own creation through each and every living organism. Are we, the collection of our experiences, immortal? And the wanderings of a cruiser. North Caicos. The DR. The Coron. St. Thomas. Provo. The Luthera. www.dreamsofasailor.com Joining me is Jennifer Leeper. Jennifer is the author of Padre, uh, which was heard back on, an excerpt of which was heard back on uh, Neil Desperandum 20. Uh, and she is also the author of the novel by the same name that was released in uh, November of 2011. Jennifer, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you allowing me to talk about my book. I appreciate you talking about it with us. Right. <laughs> um, so, Padre is kind of a redemption story, yes? Um, it's, it's definitely a redemption story, and I would go so far as to say um, that it's uh, semi-autobiographical, even though um, the uh, protagonist is male and I'm not male. <laughs> um, so I, I would definitely say that uh, uh, the redemption story is, is kind of my own story. So um, I projected that onto the character of Russell. Okay. That, yeah. I think that will go a ways toward answering some of the questions I'll have for you later. Oh, okay. But given this, yeah. that's, that's okay. Given, given that I was not aware of that, I actually have a new question to insert. Sure. Given, if that's the case, if this is, you know, largely, or at least in some, to some extent, based on your own experiences, and that, that certainly comes through in the writing. It, it felt to me to be a very, you know, a, a very introspective, a very passionate story. Why the choice in change of gender? Uh, you know, I think that's a um, a literary device, um, and I'm sure other writers, if I can call myself a writer, um, I'm sure other writers uh, maybe have have used that, maybe. Um, to kind of separate themselves, to be a little more objective. I know for me, um, I wanted to be a little more objective with the character instead of, uh, you know, just uh, putting myself directly into the book. Um, I think it was a little easier for me to write um, to change the gender of the character uh, because I could detach myself a little bit um, from the emotions. I think it might have been... Uh, for me personally, 
a little too intense to write it otherwise. Um, I, and I, I also wasn't uh, wanting to write something that was wholly autobiographical. Um, I, I did want the character to be um, some of me, but I don't think I was ready for it to be uh, completely me, um, to just lift it from me, you know, like it was my literary DNA or something. <laughs> so it was, it was almost like a, a safer move, a safer literary move for me to do it that way. Okay, that, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, that 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 does make sense. Yeah. But I can see where that that's a pretty. I mean, that's certainly a, you know a gender change is certainly a, a pretty major shift. So I can mm-hmm. see how that allows a little more emotional distance to you know, it, events and uh, happenings, mm-hmm. which you know may be uh, very emotional. That that makes right. all kinds of sense. And, uh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go. Ahead. I was just going to add, also, um, the events are somewhat different, so um, that also uh, gave me more detachment. Um, in, in my own personal um, story of, uh, you know, my own spiritual transformation, um, things didn't happen quite the way they happened in the book, so that also um, allowed me to, uh, you know, kind of tell somebody else's story instead of just my own. So... So that um, that also gave me a sense of detachment from from the character. Interesting. Okay, that, mm-hmm. I get that. And yeah. Now, this is your first uh, published fiction work, yes? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Um. Um. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, please say after you. Um, I've I've had a I've had a couple of short stories published, but uh, this is my first. Uh, um, novella length uh, piece of fiction. So it's my first, I guess, longer work published. And so, so what was it that um, drove you to? I, I guess I can kind of understand what drove you to write the story. That might be a little less interesting question, but what drove you to actually publish it? Um, you know, I think when I felt like I was finally finished writing the story, um, it just, for me, it just felt like the next logical step. Um, I've, for years now, I've wanted to publish a longer work. Um, I've always, I've always thought of myself as someone who would eventually, um, be a published author. Um, that's something I would like to do full time. So I thought, you know, it, it wasn't a full-length novel, but I thought maybe publishing a novella would be a good way to kind of get my foot in the door um, in publishing and also, you know, just get my feet wet. And um, it seems like it's been a good vehicle um, because I'm actually working on a sequel. And the sequel, um, I'm intending it to be a novel-length work, so it's going to be longer um, the sequel to Padre, so I'm currently working on that. Nice. Well, we'll I, I, I hope you will let us know uh, <laughs> as that progresses. Oh, definitely. When it becomes available, that's definitely something uh, I, I personally will be looking forward to. Um, oh, well, thank you, Jim. Did you have any problems, given that it is a novella length? Did you have any problems getting it picked up by a publisher? As as a novella in 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 a world of novels, 
you know, it's yeah, it's a very competitive industry out there, as I'm sure you know. Um, anybody who's who's in that industry um, is well aware. And also, just in these economic times, it's um, it's there's you know, I think what helped me was I I knew that I wasn't going to catch the attention of a big publisher, a big publishing house. So I started looking around at um, small fledgling publishers and um, Actually, uh, J. Barrage Publications, I hope I can say that, <laughs> um, uh, they actually um, they took a chance on me, and it's a very small publisher, but um, he uh, he must have saw something he liked, <laughs> I guess, in my work and, and decided to sign me. Um, so I, I feel, you know, like, uh, like he really took a chance and took a leap of faith and... and uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, it is very hard to get anyone's attention in the publishing industry. So, I think I was just very lucky. Um, I just happened to find a small publisher who was looking for something a little bit different. And Padre is definitely um, it's a little bit different. Um, it's uh, it's not the Twilight series, and you know, it's not <laughs> anything that you would see in the popular mainstream currently. So. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of stories about redemption. That's definitely a, um, a time-honored theme, you know, in humanity. But, um, you know, novellas, like you said, it's it's very hard to place them. And, you know, people now, they're they're definitely um, into longer works, I think, and and which is why I'm I'm the sequel is is going to be a longer work. So I hope it doesn't take me 10 years to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly hope not as well. I don't know if I can wait that long. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> how, how has it been received? How are, is it uh, doing better than you expected? Worse than you hoped? What's, what are you, sort of a few months on now, do you have any sort of handle on how it's doing relative to you know, how you might have hoped it would be doing? Um, you know, I I really had no idea um, what to expect, so um, I've I've been pleasantly surprised only because I I just had a reviewer um, a, a blogger review it. Um, um, she had some very nice words to say, so I was um, I was very grateful first of all, but um, surprised actually because um, I guess I, I had some of the books on her list. Actually, a lot of the books on her list were um, the themes were definitely uh, more secular, I would say. And so I was a little bit surprised that um, that she would take on um, a work like mine. Um, I think because of, of the length, actually, she took it on because she said this is short, <laughs> so I'm going to read this. So I got lucky because it was it was so short. So um, she probably you know, read it in 20 minutes or something. So I was very lucky. But um, I, I also, uh, a step beyond that, um, she decided to submit it um, as an idea to a TV network. So uh, it's a long shot, but, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll see the, uh, you know, maybe a TV series, you know, based on Padre. But oh. <laughs> you never know. Stranger things have happened, I guess. So Certainly. I, I but, could see that. But, yeah, so or maybe a movie, I don't know, but but I was just flattered. So like I said, I was pleasantly surprised, um, you know, just how it's been received. Uh, I guess you know by this one critic, and 
and uh, of course friends and family, um, you know, but they're biased, so <laughs> I really don't count that. <laughs> so, but it's been it's been a good good learning experience, most of all. Nice, very nice. Um, so, as an an independent author. Um, I'm a little bit curious because, you know, compared to uh, at least at least some of the probably many probably as many of the the better known you know independent authors that have come out over the past few years that have you know kind of bypassed you know the traditional big six publishing and gone to the small presses or gone to um, you know the the gone to ebooks. Um, it at least looking at it from my perspective it doesn't really look like you've done a whole lot of marketing for padre i mean you you know correct me if i'm wrong but you know at least according to google you don't have a website you know you, you right. don't have any of these other things that uh, at least i want to say we've mm -hmm. you know that we traditionally associate with independent authors but I'm not sure that traditionally mm -hmm. is the right word for something that's only been going on for five or six years, but <laughs> but everything happens so fast now, Jim. So <laughs> traditionally, you can probably apply that word <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so everything happens in nanoseconds. So you're probably right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I guess I, my question and all that yeah. is 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 that you know did you sort of intentionally forego doing those things or you know, what? What was your, you know, approach to, you know, getting Padre out there, getting it known, getting, you know, having people hear about it and say, "Wow, cool! That's something I want to go read." Mm -hmm. um, I guess the way I looked at it was, um, I, I'm not a, a salesman. I never have been, and I'm not someone who is savvy when it comes to marketing. So, I always just wanted. You know, this is, it sounds impossible, but I guess I, I always wanted things to just happen organically. I wanted um, just to hand it out to a few friends or maybe, um, you know, catch the attention of a, a book blogger, which which I did. Um, I I sent my, my book out to, oh gosh, probably 25 or 30 book bloggers, and I got a positive response from three of them, so... Um, there are a couple of other bloggers who should be coming out with a review in the next year, so um, so that will be exciting too. I can't wait to see what what their feedback is. But I really haven't um, I haven't set up a website now. My publisher does have a website um, a website within his website uh, that actually um, it's dedicated just to Padre and then to myself as an author. But um, on my own, I, I have a Twitter page and Facebook and. You know, occasionally I'll I'll post the link for Padre, but um, I really, I really just, uh, you know, I think I just want things to happen more organically, and I know that's, uh, you know, that seems pretty fantastical, you know, um, to say that, but you know, that's just the way I look at it, and I figure if something, you know, if there's going to be some magic that happens, then you know, it, it will happen without. Um, you know, me getting out of my comfort zone when it comes to, uh, you know, 
to marketing to being savvy about marketing and sure um, yeah so I'm, I'm just hoping that it will okay but Great. if it doesn't that's okay I'm going to keep writing the sequel. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So, yeah. Now, <laughs> writing is, or at least fiction writing, is not your day job. Uh, no, if I may no, ask, what not. is your day job? <laughs> um, my day job is actually uh, just um, drier. Uh, well, I'm a freelance writer, so I guess um, the content that I write normally is definitely nowhere your fiction it's uh it would be you know like freelance articles i i guess i'm like a stringer maybe for the washington post i i actually work for someone in boston who sends me assignments and it could be for the washington post one day uh or for a trade publication online another day so it's definitely drier content so that's what you know that's what pays the bills but um you know, as far as what I love, it's, it's obviously creative fiction. Um, so, you know, and, until that, you know, pays the bills, <laughs> I'll just keep writing about, you know, the drier stuff that I write about, you know, for clinical advisor or what, you know, whatever I'm working on currently. So, sure. but I enjoy writing, period. So, um, you know, whatever I'm, whatever I'm writing, it doesn't really matter what it is it, it makes me happy okay now i've certainly there are you know many fiction out the fiction authors and very successful fiction authors and very good fiction authors who you know have that same kind of you know journalistic background mm -hmm. a lot of them when you're reading their work you know it it becomes really obvious you know even for really great novels, and the the example that comes to mind because I just reread it again a couple of months ago was uh, Pat Frank's *The Last Babylon*, which is a magnificent novel. But when you're reading it, it is absolutely 100% clear that Pat Frank's day job is as a journalist. You know, based right. on based on the you know, the style, the description, it, it's it's interesting and engaging, but it still has that kind of detached journalistic viewpoint. Did you find it mm -hmm. difficult at all to switch gears between the two styles? Because you're, I mean, your your writing, at least as far as Padre goes, definitely, you know, does not reflect that. You know, reading it, you, know, you mm -hmm. never know you were a journalist, quite frankly. Oh wow. <laughs> um, well, thank you. <laughs> I guess uh, I think what helped is the um, this particular character. Um, I felt very devoted to personally. And so I think, uh, even though, um, like I said, I, I detach myself by, you know, through certain devices, like, you know, changing the gender of the character and then, um, changing the events, uh, so they didn't completely match up with my life. Um, you know, I think it was still so close to my heart that, um, you know, the objectivity was softened. Um, even the detachment, I think it was softened. Uh, through that, and so maybe uh, you know the rough journalistic edges maybe were were kind of worn down by you know um, just because I was so so close to uh, to the ultimate intention you know of this character and and uh, just the way he ended up. Um, it's, there's a lot of similarities to my life, so um, you know no matter uh, how much I tried to detach myself and 
you know, tried to be that, you know, third party observer, I really, I really ultimately couldn't detach myself. So, um, so I think that's probably why it didn't, you know, my, my journalistic background, my journalistic background didn't keep through. Uh, it, it certainly turned out well. It's, uh, I well, thank you. recommend everyone who hasn't listened to, uh, issue 20 mm-hmm. of Neil Desperandum, go back and do so and then well, run you. out and, uh, pick up a copy of Padre and I'll have all the the links to where people can do that in the show notes so um, thank you Jim definitely encourage that thank you very much for uh, for joining me Jennifer I appreciate it well thank you I really appreciate your time Jim and please keep in touch and let us let us know how things go on the new novel oh I will and I'll let you know if there's a TV show in the works. <laughs> oh, definitely, please. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Well, there it is. I hope you enjoyed No Desperandum 26. If you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a comment and a donation. Every single penny goes to pay our authors, and we can't continue to do this without your help. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation, Executive Producer Charles McFall. Until next week, my friends, take care. <laughs>